0: Lord, we ask that we would be humble before you today. That your word would come, Lord, powerfully and in a fresh way into our hearts. And Lord, that we would be um, willing, Lord, to to receive what you have for us. Lord, may may we set aside the fact that this may be somewhat of a familiar passage. And Lord, may we embrace the instruction, Lord, that you want to give us. And the way, Lord, that it, it can it can fashion and shape in us as individuals as well as a church, to truly understand what is important in the context of doing ministry and serving you. And Lord, I ask as your messenger that you would simply use me as as that messenger, Lord, to be the mouthpiece for this text, Lord, that you would you would have your way with us through uh, my words, and Lord, that we would seek to glorify you in it. So Lord give us, uh, give us your word. Give us, Lord, your, your power and your strength and your guidance today, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. I'd like for you to consider this morning that although our text is somewhat familiar, um, it is so critically important to who we are as a church. And I would say that all of Second Timothy has been working its way toward this particular text. This is the punchline of what Timothy is to do in the context of Paul leaving, and specifically in the context where there is false teaching and false teachers. Now turn, you, if you would please, to Amos in chapter 8 and verse 11. Amos chapter 8 and verse 11, and I'd like to read this for you. It says... Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Going to send a famine, he says, but not the kind of famine you're thinking about. It's going to be a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. We are all sitting in here we, we have with us either a paper copy of the Bible or we have our laptops or phones with the Bible on them. We go home, we probably have multiple Bibles on our shelves. We have the word of God. And it's incredibly hard for us to contemplate what life would be like if we didn't. Now, a few things for us to think about from men that I respect both from years ago and even contemporary men. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, the most urgent need in the Christian church today is true preaching. And as it is the greatest and most urgent need in the church, it is the greatest need in the world also. Walter Kaiser, theologian, says this, the famine of the word continues in massive proportions in most places in North America. Steve Lawson maintains that we in the United States are living in such days of drought, a time when many forces are suffocating biblical preaching. The Methodist preacher W.E. Sangster noted, preaching is in the shadows, the world does not believe it. And Alistair Begg comments on that and says, preaching is still in the shadows, but this time much of the church does not believe it. And I maintain that preaching remains in the shadows primarily because pastors don't believe in it. Friends, there is a famine of the word of God. Now you might be tempted to say, Pastor Rod, that's rather harsh. It seems rather arrogant, honestly, and quite unloving to, to, plant, uh, to paint a, a, such an awful picture of, of the state of the pastorate in the American church. And to that I would say this. I would ask some questions. Number one, is the pastor preaching? In other words, based on the word, "caruso" in the Greek, to herald or proclaim, is that what is going on? Secondly... The next question would be this What is the pastor preaching? Is he preaching his own thoughts, his own ideas, his own agenda? Is he trying to determine what the people want or what he thinks that they need and then come up with a talk to try and meet that need? Is he preaching a political message, a psychological message, a moral message, a message that fits comfortably within the the tent of Christianity? In other words, what is the substance or the content of what he is preaching? And then to whom is he accountable and for what? The preaching of the word of God is a very solemn command given by God to those who are to handle his word. And friends, it's critical for us as a church... Now imagine, imagine taking a break from church. Imagine that you were like the Dodsons. All right? And I didn't come up with this because they were, they were you know, leaving us in a couple of weeks, but just imagine that you were moving away from the Bay Area and you were going to establish your life in another place in the United States, and you've been involved in the church for years, and you're just saying to your spouse, you know what, we've been so actively involved in the church. We're going to go to this new place. People aren't going to know us. Let's just, let's just chill out for a bit. Let's just take it easy. Let's just kind of step away from, from getting involved in the church and, and just give it a break. Now, what effect do you think that's going to have on your Christian walk? Now, some might be tempted to say, you'll be fine. You've been going to church for years. You'll be okay. You're like a, a spiritual camel with spiritual humps that will give you the food and nourishment you need, or at least for a good duration of time. And friends, that is a bad answer because we, are, we will not be able to last long without being part of God's church and without sitting under the faithful preaching of God's word. We need someone to say to us, this is what God's word says to you. This is his law. This is what grace does. This is his counsel and his wisdom, and on and on and on. We need to be under the preaching of the word of God. Now, you might say, Pastor Rod, I know you love this passage because you're a pastor, and this is your opportunity to kind of promote yourself, and I want you to set that aside. I want you to realize that this is God's way of ministering to his people. This is God's mandate. And no matter what church you go to, you want to make sure that you're in a church that is going to preach the word and that you're sitting under the preaching of the word. Without faithful preaching of God's word, we will all go soft. We might start out okay, but after a while, will become more and more like the world around us rather than being like Christ. So, friends, we need what Paul is saying to Timothy here. Now, our text is one that is often turned to at the ordination services of pastors or elders. I would say this is an anchor text for any pastor who loves the word and is committed to serving God and the church God's way and for his glory. It's a text that roots the pastor's call in the primary nature of that call in the heart of God rather than in the opinions and the thoughts and the accolades of man. And this is a powerful word to Timothy. And this is a powerful word for any pastor. And this is an authoritative word for anyone who handles the word with other people and it's an important text for all who sit under that word. And so as, as we come now to 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8, I want you to notice what Paul is ultimately saying to Timothy. Here's, here's the proposition. Here's how I'm putting it. In light of his impending departure, which we have seen and we've noted throughout our study, Paul calls on Timothy to fulfill his ministry as a faithful preacher of God's word. This is is the answer. This is what he's pointing to. There's a lot of things that people could say when you have false teachers showing up in your church. What should you do? all, all sorts of strategies to deal with that. And Paul's strategy is, listen, Timothy, continue to preach the word. And remember, Paul's in prison, awaiting his execution. Timothy is in Ephesus, having to endure the hardship of these false teachers. And now Paul proceeds to tell Timothy what to do. And these are some of the last recorded words of Paul that we have. So just just receive them and hear them as he passionately pleads with Timothy to listen to what he's saying. First of all, I want you to notice the charge given. The charge given. We're going to spend most of our time here. He says, I charge you. And then verse 2 he says, to preach the word. He isn't saying preach words, or preach many words, or give a talk, or, or just preach. The statement communicates this divine activity, this mandate of preaching. And it's the word curusa, which means to proclaim, to herald. The herald will come into town and shake his bell. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. I have a message for you from the king. And the preacher is to come to God's people and say, This is what God is saying to you. It is also communicating the content or the substance of that activity. He's saying, Preach, herald, what? The word. Now, it's the word that must be preached. The word here is referring to the gospel, the message of Christ, the preaching of the living word of Christ as testified in the Old Testaments and is ultimately explained and, uh, and further clarified in the apostles' writings, which we call the New Testament. So it's the very word of God that is the substance that is to be preached here. It is a public proclamation of the Bible that is revealing Christ It means when believers are sitting under the preaching of God's word that their Bibles are open and they're checking that what is being preached is truly Christ. They're Bereans. Now he gives five instructions here as to how this word is to be preached or as to the preaching of this word. First of all, we'll put it this way. He's saying preach the word conscientiously, conscientiously, notice verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. So Paul begins this charge by pointing to heaven, and notice how our text begins with God and Christ judging the living and the dead, and then at the end of our text, again, we have God in Christ, the righteous judge, who's awarding the faithful preacher on that day. So there's kind of like these, these bookends that are going on with this charge. And there's a context here that Paul is giving. Paul's saying, I'm charging you, Timothy, but there is a, there's a backdrop going on. And that backdrop is God in Christ. And he's saying, I am, I am charging you, but I need for you to be conscientious about who ultimately you are responsible to. You are accountable to God. You're accountable to Christ. Now what's, what's important about this word specifically to Timothy? And really for any minister of the word of God. To be reminded that as a pastor or as a, pre, a pastor teacher that my accountability is to God ultimately. It's helpful because you know what? I can't see him. But I can see all sorts of different people here. And in Timothy's context, he has false teachers within the body of Christ, within the various houses that are coming in, worming their way in. He can see them. They're the ones that are teaching. They're the ones that are argumentative. They're the ones that are quarreling. He doesn't have to look to find them. They're there. And sometimes when you're in the thick of it, you need to be reminded that the one that you can't see is the most important one of all. And as a pastor, or anyone who's handling the word of God in the context of a class or a Bible study, your most important audience is the one that you can't see. It is God himself. He is is the one for whom you are doing this. So when the Lord returns, what question is he going to ask Timothy and every other pastor? Well, he's not going to ask, were you successful in the eyes of the world? He's not going to ask, did you really um, gather the church and and, and, and and take up these offerings so you could build these great and wonderful buildings that are a testament to you? Does, does he, is he going to ask, did these things go well with you outwardly so that the world was impressed with what you were doing? And of course the answer is no, no, no. What he is going to ask is this Timothy, did you preach the word? I mean, it's quite simple when it comes down to it. The mandate for a pastor-teacher is to teach or preach, exhort, expound, proclaim the Word of God. The reality is there are some who have been outwardly successful who will not be able to answer that question correctly. But there are many who don't have the appearance of great success as far as the world is concerned But when they stand before the Lord Jesus Christ on that day, he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You may have only had a few, but you were faithful to preach the word, to stand firm for my glory. Not only preach conscientiously, but secondly, preach continuously. Be ready in season and out of season. Now here in California, sometimes that's kind of hard to explain because... We jump usually from summer to winter, right? And you don't get much fall. But this year we've gotten some fall. But the idea here is this. We are to preach the word continuously. We are to do it, as it says, in season, out of season, when it's convenient, when it's inconvenient, when it feels right, and when it's difficult, when it feels right. Things like when you're full of joy about the passage, Maybe you're doing a Sunday school lesson. You're like, oh, this is great. Oh, I can't wait to do this. Oh, the kids are going to love this. Or you know, they're just going to think this nugget of truth is so profound and I know this person's going to need it. I can't wait to do this, right? It's, it's fun to do it then. Or when people come to listen and they are hungry and appreciative of what you're doing. When the topic is uplifting, encouraging, or, or positive. When it's popular, enjoyable, and people are receptive. But when it's difficult. That's when people don't care. That's when they're apathetic. That's when they're hostile to what you're saying. Or maybe a difficult time was when you're presiding over a funeral and the person that passed away is not a child of God. But the people that are putting them in the ground are claiming that they are. That's a very difficult context into which to preach the word. Or when the topic is about things like adultery and divorce, giving, or grumbling. Times when you're meddling. No, the word of God is what meddles. Or maybe when someone will write a blog article against you, or letters to the editor to slander your good name. There's are difficult times. And friends, the faithful pastor is going to preach the word continuously when it's fun, when it's difficult, when people are receptive, and when they're not. Preaching the word is what God has called the pastor to do, regardless of the time, regardless of the situation, regardless of how one feels or the attitude of the hearers. You heard the story about the guy who was in bed on a Sunday morning, and he's tired, and his wife looks at him and says, listen, are you going to go to church or not? He's like, you know, I guess I am. And she says, Well, you are the pastor. <laughs> you know, and, and the reality is, guys, that the people who are handling the word are people who struggle. People who get up with headaches. People who have to deal with kids. Right? People who've, who've had a rough time, maybe with family members that you don't know about. But God calls them to fulfill the responsibility of preaching the word. A faithful pastor is not unaware of the fact that the word of God explained and pressed home will be a variety will bring about a variety of responses. Some will get angry, some will be yawning, some are thinking about what they want for lunch. Some are weeping, broken, and despondent. I tell you what, it's it's a it's a, a really humbling experience to preach the word of God and to know in the midst of that preaching that people are struggling and they're weeping and they are, they're confessing their sin. and You can see it in the faces. You can see what's happening. Sometimes there's, there's thankfulness. There's deep contemplation. Sometimes there's the, the counting the seconds on the clock, which happens a lot here, usually around 12 or so. Sometimes there's trying to get all the words filled in on the blanks, right? Some are repentant and confessing their sin. Some realize their sinfulness and are cut to the heart, unsure of what they do. And the remarkable thing is that this can all be taking place in the same sermon. And the pastor is called to preach the word continuously regardless of all of those things. Third, preach the word comprehensively. Comprehensively. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. The question we're asking here is this. How is the preacher of God's word to preach? Now notice that the words, these words fashion and shape the answer to this question, to reprove, to rebuke, and to exhort. This is how. Remember what Paul told Timothy about what scripture was for, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so he's following up now and reinforcing what he's saying. Because back there he was saying, listen, Timothy, the way that you're able to face these false teachers is by going to the word. It's the word of God that equips you with the right answers and the right understanding. But now he's saying, preach the word. And it's this word that is going to reprove, it's going to rebuke, it's going to exhort. So let's look at these three words. The idea of reprove is simply the idea of correcting, correcting someone who continues in sin. It's when the pastor ultimately is saying, this is wrong. The Bible says, this is sinful, And he shows it to you from the passage, shows you what the Word of God says, and allows that to expose, or at least to to tap on your heart, to see whether or not that is true about you. So it is the pastor carefully showing his people where they are wrong and why they are wrong, and taking them to that text. The next word is rebuke, and the idea there is to stop people from continuing in their sin. Seeking to prevent an action or to bring it to an end. It's the pastor's ministry of speaking to those who are in error or doing wrong in an attempt to call them to repentance, to call them to to confession, to stop their behavior. I love what Kent Hughes says about this. He says, if you enjoy correcting and rebuking, you are likely not fit for the ministry. But if you don't do it, you're a shirker. Now listen, I've I've in, in my years, earlier years, I have sat under pastors that I think absolutely love to rebuke. And maybe you have too. I mean, they just can't wait. Oh, this is the topic today. I'm gonna get these people today. There's no tenderness, there's nothing pastoral about that. But friends, the beauty of working our way through a book of the Bible is to say this is what God has for us today and we must be humble to accept it. We must be humble to preach it and to reveal it so that we can be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. There's no joy in confronting people in their sin from the perspective of, let me show you how bad you are. The joy comes in showing how the word of God exposes and it corrects, but it also brings you to the place where you can be reconciled to Christ. The joy is seeing that sin removed and re- replaced by Christ-like attributes and a Christ-like heart. And so that brings us then to this next word, and that's the word exhort. And that ultimately is, is answering the question, or, or saying this, here is what you need to do. It's the word parakaleo, which means to come alongside, the idea of encouraging, the idea of urging those who are listening to the word that is preached to respond to that word. So it's, it's going to be, come through words like this. Yes, that's what God wants you to do. Yes, well done, that's right, you've got it right. Keep plugging away in your battle against that sin. Don't give up. Lean on Christ. Lean on his word. Lean on the church that he has provided for you. If you fall into the ditch as you're walking on your Christian walk, just remember to go back to God, to to seek him out, and to seek to restore your relationship with him seek forgiveness, repent of your sins, be restored back to fellowship with him, and get back on that ditch. So these are all words of encouragement and words of instruction to help those who have been reproved and rebuked to get back. And so we've got to be careful. If we're just reproving and rebuking and saying, bad, 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 and we're not coming along saying that, but let me show you what God says about how you can get to where you need to be. So there's a balance here. This, this all shapes the preaching of the word of God. So when we preach comprehensively, we're not just left with those three words because the, the Apostle Paul gives two more imperatives here, or two more words, I should say, that express the manner in which reproving, rebuking, and encouraging should take place. And In other words, patience and teaching. The idea of patience here is forbearance. The idea is patience with people in particular. Sometimes people just don't get things as fast as they should. You can... You can show them the problem, and they're like, "Mm, I don't get it, and you can get frustrated, and I've preached on that before, and we've gone through that before, and you just don't get it. You've got to be patient. People don't change overnight, right? You didn't. The only change that took place like that was your conversion. Everything else is a slow burn and that's the way God has created us. He's created us to enter into this new life with him that is, that is a means of progressive sanctification. We jump in and progressively become more and more like Christ. And there's teaching. And the idea of the teaching here is this practical instruction from the word. So you, you fashion these three imperatives with these two words that come along and say, listen, here's how you can do it. Let me, let me show you. Let me train you. Let me guide you along the way here, with the word of God. And ultimately, it's the word of God that connects your struggle to the finished work of Christ on the cross. See, it's it's this teaching aspect that says, listen, this is is what God said is wrong, but let let me show you how the gospel now meets that need, and how Jesus Christ can satisfy you when that sin has been what you've been pursuing to satisfy you. It shows the importance of the gospel. It shows how your life relates to the gospel. And the faithful preacher is ready to preach in season, out of season, and he is willing to reprove and rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And that's why Richard Baxter has famously said this, I preach as never sure to preach again, as a dying man to dying men. There's a sense of urgency about preaching. There's a sense in which we don't know what is yet to come. Today may be the last day of your life. And I know that's that's sensationalism, but there's a reality to that. There's a reality that God is speaking, and we must be eager to hear. We must be eager to listen. God is speaking through his preached word. Men's lives are at stake Time is short. And the faithful preacher is also understanding that it is the word of God that makes a difference. The emphasis there is it's the word of God that makes a difference. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. A clever, cute church growth strategy will not get to the heart. But the word of God does. And it's the word of God that we need. And so we preach the word comprehensively. Not only that, we preach the word, I'm using the word consistently. Notice what happens here. He says, for the time is coming. The time is coming. Look back, if you would, at chapter 3, verse 1. He said there to Timothy, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. And and, and in that context, he was not just saying, this is something in the future. He's saying, in the last days, this is what it's going to be like. And by the way, it's that way now. And he's using the same kind of language here to say, listen, for the time is coming and still is or is already here. Okay? The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into mist. Now I know, when I read this passage here where it talks about itching ears, there's everything I want to do to take my finger and to scratch, right? There's just something about that, just how God has wired us together here, right? But the, the, the picture here is really, really important. The idea of itching ears is that that the listener is looking for someone to speak to them, to affirm them, to stroke them in the way that they want to be stroked. They want to hear what they want to hear to give them justification for what they are doing. Now friends, this is a chilling and a scathing assessment of the church. Turning away from listening to the truth. How, how could People that would claim to be God's children ultimately turn away from listening to the truth. I mean, it's the truth that that brought life, it's the truth that brings the gospel. But they turn away from that and they wander off into myths. William Hendrickson says: in every period of history, there will be a season during which men will refuse to listen to sound doctrine. As history continues, onward toward the consummation, this situation grows worse. Men will not endure to tolerate the truth. Friends, there is among men an itch, an itch for novelty, an itch for something more, an itch for a greater experience. I served over... Uh, one pastor who, 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 whose endeavor every time he preached was to come up with something new, to come up with something novel that will leave a lasting impact. So one time when he preached, he used coffee stirrers and gave everyone a coffee stirrer and used that as an object lesson in his sermon. The next time, I walked into the auditorium, there's tennis balls everywhere. Next time... Um, Candy canes were given. Another time, he he created this video where he interacted with this video, and it's like, wow, this is really going to have an impact because people are going to listen and all this kind of stuff. And and I, I pulled him into my office the next day, and I said, listen, this has to stop because the power that you're looking for is in the cuteness, the cleverness, the gimmick. And what's missing here is the power of the word preached. And I said, from now on, you cannot use any gimmicks. You cannot use any, you know, any of these object lessons. You just simply need to open the word and let it speak. And that was incredibly hard for him because he had practiced and learned how to use gimmicks to capture people's attention. But friends, I don't want people going home saying, oh, wow. That tennis ball, I'm gonna keep that on my dress. I'm gonna remember about this. I want people going and saying, Thus says the Lord. I don't want them to know what the Word of God is saying to them now. So we gotta be really, really careful. There's a context, friends, where, where itching ears are looking for things that are trendy. Itching ears are looking for, for cleverness and cuteness. And it might win over those people who are having itching ears, but it will lead them away from God. It will lead them away from appreciating the powerful dynamic of expository preaching that God has called the pastor to do. When you start turning to gimmicks, you start moving away from this. And friends, my desire as a pastor, and I think this flows out of God's word, is to get you into this, is to get you to love this, is to get you hungry for this, so that you go home and you're picking this up, and you're reading it, and you're studying it, and you're loving it, and you're memorizing it. And you're living it. Paul is not giving Timothy a hypothetical here. But he's speaking to Timothy about the false teachers that he is facing in Ephesus. You see, they are gaining followers by preaching um, what the people want to hear. We've talked about this before. You know, look at look at how large our church is. And by the way, for for a young church, we're we're doing absolutely fantastic as far as you know, we want to say if you want to put numbers on it. But if we wanted to get a crowd in here, we could do that. There are things that we could do just to trump up attendance and get people to walk through. But the measure of a church is not how many you have and how many you can pack into a building. This is not a game. This is God's people gathered together, growing together, learning together, being shepherded together. The sad reality is that this is nothing new. In Jeremiah chapter five, verse 31, we read, "The prophets prophesy falsely, or they preach falsely, and my people love to have it so." There is a sense in which the result of unfaithful preaching is that even those who are listening to that are looking for the kind of preaching that actually satisfies their sinful tendencies. Jesus explains to us in the parable of the soils that not all of those who claim to be believers are truly believers. Actually, it's only that last soil that has been prepared by God that really is the true soil, the one that bears fruit. And that's just a picture of, you might want to say, the big tent of church in America. There, there are plenty that walk around and have all the appearance of following God. But in the context of the church, there are many unbelievers. One has said, when the syndrome of itching ears is in place, people who call themselves Christians will find the truth in Christ Jesus intolerable and will seek to stamp it out. When I have church members, not here, but in previous ministries, say to me, you're preaching about sin too much. Um... Well, I could go on. But the, the, the point is that people just they stop loving God's truth. They want what they want and they want you to satisfy what they desire and want, as opposed to being under the word of God. Now, friends, it's it's not easy being a servant of the Lord, or someone who's handling the word of God, whether it's a pastor, teacher, or whether it's in the context of a class, whether it's in a small group, you've got a difficult passage, you've got a topic that's that's hard, that has to be dealt with, and there are going to be some that aren't going to like it. But you must preach the word consistently. You must teach the word consistently, regardless of where these people are coming from. Now, I'm not saying... Hey, you know what? I, if I see people that are coming into our church that I have an idea that maybe someone is Jewish or maybe someone's from a different, you know, they're unbeliever or something, I'm trying to, trying to adjust in my thinking. How can the Word of God actually connect with them? How can I be adjusting, not the truth, but how can I adjust the, the way to, to share the truth in such a way that it will it'll capture them and they'll see it? That's a different issue. But we're talking here about the way the Word of God is, is set aside or... Or watered down simply to accommodate what people want to hear rather than simply being faithful to preaches. People don't want to hear about sin. They just want to hear about grace, right? We've had the choice. You want to hear about sin or you want to hear about grace? Oh, the grace hands would go up, right? They don't like to hear about conviction, repentance, God's wrath, his justice. They just want to know that they're loved, protected, welcomed, and affirmed. I just thought about it a bit. This may not be completely accurate, but there are prodigal sons and daughters who are still spending the master's inheritance, living in sin, enjoying their sin, and don't want to be told that they're wasting their lives, but they're actually still part of his family. Now, that may not be true, but it just paints the picture here. If they want to do what they want to do, and they want to be welcomed into the body of Christ too, and they want the person who's standing up with the word of God to affirm them in it. Like I said, friends, it is extremely difficult. And there's always this tendency just to, to want to give in just a little bit. To be liked and appreciated rather than be in a battle the whole time. To soften the blow of God's truth with gentler suggestions. To normalize people's sins by simply suggesting, hey, it's okay, we're all sinners. Now the reality is we're all sinners, but if we're dealing with sin, this sin might be your sin and you need to deal with it. And we need to be honest about that and help people to face what God's word says. Now, it's worth noting that these two verses Paul uh, is giving us here, he is pointing to the responsibility of the hearer, not just the teacher. So the question for us is this. You know, what is it that we desire as, lis- as listeners? Um, are we seeing our role as listeners as something that is important to God and therefore important to us? Are we guilty of wanting what is novel, new, sensational, and shallow? Are we impressed with someone's sense of humor more than their sense of holiness? I, I remember someone coming up to me and saying, well, you know, there was a funeral. Well, we've asked so-and-so to do the funeral because he has more of a sense of humor than you do. And they're right. But since one has having a sense of humor been the basis of whether someone should be handling the word of God. Okay, this is the kind of thinking that, I'm, you know, that I think we have to wrestle with. Are we looking for someone to stroke us while we continue to live in our sin? Are we angry when we are confronted by God's word through a pastor who is bearing in on our hearts with the truth of God's word? Now, we can blame pastors all we want, but are we willing to take the blame for our own itching ears being satisfied? And friends, it comes out in different ways. Little comments, little statements. Now, let me just say this. I love you guys, and I don't sense any of that stuff here at Gateway. But that doesn't mean that it can't crop up. And that doesn't mean that your sinful heart cannot turn against what God is saying through me or another one of the elders as we proclaim the word of God to you. We must take this responsibility of listening seriously. Then we preach the word of God courageously. And this is the result, I think, of this this last one. We're consistent, but we're also courageous. So in, in light of those itching ears, Paul gives these four statements, these four uh, imperatives again, or as really necessities for, for we who are going to be handling the word of God. He says, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And the idea of being sober-minded here is not speaking about drunkenness, but really it's, it's kind of a reflection back to what was happening with the false teachers. They are speaking words that are intoxicating and people like, oh, I've got to go, that sounds so good, oh, I need that. When it's not the word of God that has been given, but something else that is causing this sensationalism. He's saying, no, keep your head, Timothy, when everyone else is losing theirs. Secondly, endure suffering. That has been the constant theme in this pastoral letter. Chapter 1, verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Share in suffering, endure suffering. Friends, there will be persecution, desertions, wanderings, oppositions, and a faithful pastor cannot be soft in that kind of context. Third, do the work of an evangelist. Whom do you think is behind all the distortions, all the... Divisions, all the the pursuits for novelty in the church certainly isn't the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Satan's behind that, and he is working hard to undermine the Word of God being proclaimed. And so he ushers in all these other methodologies. And friends, so when the pastor actually stands before the congregation and preaches the Word, he is evangelizing. He is proclaiming the good news from every text of the word of God. He's showing how the word of God connects to where you live. And he says, fulfill your ministry. In other words, don't give up. Keep going to the end. Preaching and teaching God's word in a hostile context takes divine courage, friends. And everyone who stands before you with an open Bible to teach or to preach God's word is in need of your constant prayers. I'm reminded <laughs> of the, the question that Charles had in Spurgeon answered when someone said, what's the secret to your preaching? And he took them downstairs into the basement of the church where there were, I think, about 200 people gathered for prayer for that service. Now, this is a large church. He says, this is where the power is. Prayer for the ministry of the word. Whoever is doing it—me, one of the elders—as we are, as you, as a, as a family here gathered together, praying. As you're listening, you can be praying. Now, friends, this is the charge. It's a daunting charge. It's a difficult charge, but it's critically important for the health of your soul and for the health of the church. Now, I told you we'd spend the lion's share in this charge, so don't panic. Of course, by now you learn not to panic. You just roll with it, right? There's the charge. Secondly, there's the crisis revealed. This is, this is the reason why Paul is saying all this. Now, we've known this because we've, we've studied the book and we've, we've connected the dots that this is you know, Paul's last word. And that's why he's giving this charge. Look at verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So there's an urgent crisis that is looming right now, and that is that Paul knows his end is near. He knows that the finality of his life, that God has has really finished with him, in the capacity of his apostolic and teaching ministry and that the baton needs to be passed on to another faithful servant of the Lord. And that's why he is appealing to Timothy and he's urging him to preach the word. Now notice, notice what Paul says. He considers the present. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Here we have a picture of, of a an an Old Testament sacrifice of a a lamb and and the wine being poured out, the red wine being poured out on that sacrifice. And he's he's using that image to talk about the fact that my life has been a sacrifice to the Lord and my life is now being poured out. Out. It's, it's not a new image for Paul. Five years earlier, before he wrote this, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 17, this is what he says. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. At that point in time, it wasn't realized, but now it is. So Paul, who challenges us to be living sacrifices now, sees his life as a dying sacrifice given to the glory of God. There's something both somber and triumphant about that, isn't that? Here you are. You've given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and at the end of your days, you're seeing yourself as, as, as that one laying on that altar, giving your life ultimately for the glory of God. That's what he's saying. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Secondly, he anticipates anticipates the future. The time of my departure has come. That word departure is really a a wonderful word picture. It's the idea of of a ship that is anchored and they're pulling up the anchor and they're untying all the ropes and the wind begins to catch the sails and that boat is starting to depart from that harbor. That's the idea of this word. His departure is at hand. And the, the motions are, are starting to, to take place now. The, the anchor is being pulled up a little bit. The wind is, is kind of getting into the sail, so to speak. And he realizes, all right, my, my time is almost gone. This is what is yet to take place. And the, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.23 says this, to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. This is something that he longed for. He longed to depart from being in this, this present earth and to be with his Lord, but he was willing to serve his Lord in this capacity for his glory. Now you can get Paul's logic. He's saying, Timothy, in God's plan, my time is coming to an end and you must carry on God's work. There's an important principle here. The work of God is always greater than the instrument that he uses. The work of God is always greater than the instrument he uses. And we see that in scripture. We see Eli dying and God raising up Samuel. We see Moses dying and God raising up Joshua. We see Elijah taken up and Elisha coming behind him. Now we see Paul, who's going to die And he's appealing to Timothy to carry on the work. And friends, that is the case. And that's the way it would be in the context even of a church. A church is not about one particular man. A church is about the gathering of God's people where that one particular man is using his gifts for God's glory for that season until God changes that plan. But then that ministry can continue on. Because... The the important thing is not me or another pastor. The important thing is that God's agenda is being lived out in the context of that church. John Wesley says it this way, God buries his workmen but carries on his work. And notice thirdly, he reflects on the past. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. The first one is a a wrestling analogy. Paul has given all his energy, he's saying, into the wrestling match and has given his best. The question for us is, are we even wrestling? Or are we pinned down, being thrown about? If we're to follow his example, we're to keep fighting, we're to keep fighting, we're to keep fighting. He says, I finished the race. That's a running metaphor, really a a metaphor of a marathon, a marathon. There's been many obstacles in his way. There's been persecution, hardships, criticism, desertion by friends, but he keeps running, even when he is facing those hardships. And there's an echo of Hebrews 12:1 and 2 here that teaches us the Christian race begins and ends with Christ. And then he says, "I've kept the faith." And this really, friends, is the implication of what we have just seen in the last two images. He's fought the good fight, he's finished the race, and he's been faithful in doing it. Through it all, Paul has been faithful to guard the gospel, to proclaim Christ, to share in suffering, to steward God's church, and to pass on the faith to godly men. So Timothy, there's an urgency for you to take the baton of faithful ministry and carry it on. I'm departing, so now be faithful to endure for the sake of the gospel. There's this urgency then. Preach the word, because I'm leaving. And you're the man that I'm passing this on to. And remember the context of this charge. It is before God, it is before Christ. But then he goes and he talks about a crown the crown The crown that is anticipated. There's something very suspicious, I think, when we come to the prospect of rewards, even in heaven. It kind of goes against the, the grain of our, well, you know. I'm saved by grace through faith. I'm not saved by works. And so when there's this reward kind of thing talked about, it's like, well, so am I working for this crown? Am I working for this reward? How does that all kind of relate? Well, Um, You might look at Paul's list that we just read here and and kind of think it's a little egocentric. Maybe you you would read it this way. Here's Paul speaking. I've already fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. Um, I've finished the course. Yay me. Selfie picture. Well done me. I'm a super Christian. But that's not the point of what Paul is saying. Now, what, what, we, what we need to see here is, is the actual beauty of what Paul is saying, because what Paul is saying about the crown he's going to receive is the same thing that is true about us, and I want to make sure that we connect that. I want you to notice this is a crown of righteousness for Paul. He says, henceforth is laid up for me... The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Paul is saying that there's a crown that is awaiting him in heaven. It's the crown of righteousness. This is not so much a reward, but a fulfillment of a promise. Now hear this. When Paul believed, God had given, at that point in time, Paul the righteousness of Christ. When you and I embrace Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are automatically clothed with his righteousness. And so Paul is on the earth, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, but now he is awaiting the crowning of that righteousness being realized in heaven. He has this righteousness awaiting him. Gordon Fee says it this way, one receives the final crown of righteousness precisely because one has already received the righteousness of Christ. In other words, this is the crowning of your salvation. This is the crowning of what Christ has done for you and dying on the cross. What a prospect to be clothed in Christ's righteousness, certainly and in heaven to be wearing that crown of righteousness. And so there's also a crown for all. It says, not only me, but all, also all who have loved his appearing. That's just talking about all believers. All those who are anticipating, who are longing for the return of Christ. Who are longing for his kingdom to be set up. So Paul isn't the only one who will receive this crown of righteousness. All who love his appearing will also receive that same crown. Those who love Christ also long for Christ's appearing. They recognize that they're truly his citizen or the citizens of another kingdom. They recognize that their true country is heaven. They look forward to the blessed hope of Christ's return. Let me just kind of bring it down together here as we close and just give us a little bit more of a bigger, big picture perspective. Number one, I'm gonna use the word expository simply to describe the, the, the substance and the content of the word of God. But there is God who is an expository author, a revealer. When God breathed out his word, he didn't just breathe out words that were kind of you know, scattered all over the place and confusing and disjointed. He breathed out his word in genres and stories and letters and poems and songs. He breathed it out in such a way that there was cohesion and understanding, and he did that for us so that we could comprehend it. And so God has breathed out his his word, the very words, and and all the, the content that is in the Bible, he has breathed out for us. But then he also calls, secondly, for men to be expository preachers, to then be his mouthpieces to show and to proclaim his word to those who are his people, to open up the word, to explain it, to illustrate it, to apply it, to, to, to demonstrate why it's important, to press it home. That's all part of the responsibility of the person who is handling the word of God. But there is also another part of the picture here, and that is the expository Listener. So that's all of you here today. Before God, you have a responsibility with what you do with what has been preached, with what God has revealed and is revealing through His pastor teacher at that very moment. Do we recognize the seriousness of what it means to be an expository listener? I want to just draw your attention to a great little book that we've handed out many times called What is a Healthy Church Member? And it goes along with the nine marks of a healthy church that um, Mark Dever has put together. And this is written by Fabidi Hanya wile I usually can say that. Um, chapter, uh, this, is, this goes along with Mark 1. Mark 1 and the nine marks is expository preaching. And here he says, A healthy church member is an, an expositional listener let me just just highlight some things that he says here that are would be good things for someone who wants to be an expository listener number one meditate on the sermon passage during your quiet time now more often than not um well do you know what do you know what we're going to preach on next week anyone know it's, it's, it's the next passage, right? So the, the point is, it, it shouldn't be too much of a surprise to you that if this is where we are in Second Timothy, that we're going to be going to the next passage next. Now, sometimes there's a gap because things change. But you know, meditate on the sermon passage during your quiet time. Before it's even preached, meditate on it. Anticipate it. And when we jump into Second uh, Samuel, which is what we'll do when we get into the new year, Again, read ahead. Begin, you know, get the story fresh in your mind. Begin to, to wrestle with it yourself so that when you come, you already have the text. Okay? Number two, invest in a good set of commentaries. You know, you can, you can get some, some basic ones, you can get some detailed ones, but you can work along and be a good listener by that. Talk and pray with friends about the sermon after church. I mean, you know, apart, apart from home group, are you guys interacting? Not not about what Rod said, but about the text, about what God says. Number four, listen to and act on the sermon throughout the week. Reflect on it. Bring it up again. All right? Be that, that cow that's chewing its cud and just bring it up again and just chewing on it some more. Develop the habit of addressing any question about the text itself. Ask questions of the text, the things that you don't understand. Ask the question and start digging and start allowing your Bible to be a, 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 a way that you're wandering through to find out what the scripture says about itself. And then finally it says cultivate humility. Now friends, there are, there are more things that you could do to be good listeners, but the challenge is God has revealed his word. He's put the responsibility of proclaiming that word on specific individuals who have been gifted by him as pastor, teachers, and those who are listening have just as much responsibility to be faithful listeners as he has the responsibility to, throughout the week, be in careful preparation to proclaim the word of God. We're all in this together. There is a partnership going on for the glory of God. Lord, help us today to having marinated for a while in this section of scripture to see the importance of the word of God preached. And Lord, I thank you so much for our church that has made this a central priority that is is not only tolerant, but is eager of giving time so that the word of God can be explained and proclaimed in, in such a way that we're not rushing through it, that we're, we're seeing what it says, and we're able to, consider uh, the impact of God's word, and your word on our lives. Pray, Lord, that we would, we would embrace this, this challenge to be faithful listeners as we gather. That you would give us greater insight, greater hunger for what it is that you're revealing. And Lord, that you would raise up in our little church men who love your truth, who believe they're called to proclaim your truth, and are willing to put in the time and the effort to do that so that your people, that your church, can be equipped and fed and shaped and molded to be like your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the ministry of preaching. Thank you, Lord, for the great privilege of listening. Would you change us and fashion us and shape us, Lord, to be the kind of people you want us to be. In your precious name, amen.